Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am Pat Rulo. We specialize in author interviews, audiobook and podcast production, as well as the prestigious Firebird Book Awards. We also feature our fun and short podcast that allows authors to record their own writing tip to share on our very own Boom Bang, Oh My Gosh, Wow podcast, which you will find with the rest of the offerings at speakuptalkradio.com. But right now, I am just thrilled to share a recent Firebird Book Award-winning author with you. She is Julie Skolnick, and her winning book is titled Paris Blue. Julie is a concert flutist and the founding artistic director of Mistral Music, a chamber music series which, since 1997, has been known for its virtuosic artists, imaginative programming, and the personal rapport she establishes with her audiences. Since her treatment and recovery from breast cancer in 2005, Julie has found ways to play and organize benefit concerts, which raise funds for support for underserved women with this disease. She lives in Boston with her husband, a physicist, Michael Brower, and her two cats, Daphne and Chloe. They have two adult children, also musicians, and the three of them perform frequently together. There's a lot more to know about Julie, and you can find out at julieskolnick.com. But right now, I want to dig into her book and get going. So welcome to the network, Julie. Thank you, Pat. I'm very, very happy to be here. Congratulations on the book win. Oh, thank you. I'm so surprised and very, very pleased. Um, I'm very happy, especially that the artist who did my cover was acknowledged because I have not really entered the cover into any awards, and it's, it's such a beautiful cover that I'm glad to give him that recognition. Oh, it is such a beautiful cover, and that captivated me from just the get-go. As soon as I saw it, I felt the book. Nice. Yes. Nice. Yeah. All righty. Well, I'm going to grab a little line from your website because it says it all. You say, set against a magical backdrop of Paris and classical music, Paris Blue is a true fairy tale memoir with a dark underbelly about the tenacious grip of first love. Give us a peek. Well, I, this, of course, gives away uh, how old I am, but um, the book begins in 1976 when I'm just arriving in Paris as a, uh, a student on a junior year abroad program from my American university. And, um, you know, it's, it's overwhelmingly beautiful. I'm excited to be in such a poetic city. But then it starts to feel very lonely and isolated because you have to remember this is the era way decades before the Internet, before cell phones, before anything. So we were all a bit, uh, you know, in our little homes, either our own little studios somewhere or, or within another person's apartment. And um, I started to feel very lonely. So I looked for a chorus to join. And um, I found the best chorus, one that sang with the Orchestra of Paris. And that is the setting of where I first met the object of my affection, a, a lawyer in the bass section. And um, he begins to drive me home from rehearsals, and he needs to learn English. So we start to spend hours in cafes in parks of Paris um, in English lessons. I used Oscar Wilde fairy tales and English romantic poets, and that was the structure of our early courtship. I wonder why you decided to write this and share it with the world, because it is very, very personal. You know, it's a great question, and especially 
people have been asking me that now that they realize this is a story that began over 40 years ago, and they say, why now? Well, it wasn't just now. I actually have been trying and needing and wanting to tell this story for four decades. Um, but one, one thing that I just came across recently is a quote by Maya Angelou that really, really encapsulates it for me. And what she said was, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. And I think that that is such a, an apt quote for me because I, I just didn't wake up yesterday and think, hmm, I think I'll tell this story. Um, this has been a story that has lingered in the psyche of my unconscious for, for you know, since 1978 when, um, when this ended. And if you, when you read the book, you'll see that part of what happened is that I searched for answers for so many years, and without getting those answers, I wasn't able to find the closure that I needed. And um, I think that writing the book, in a sense, provided me with a little bit of that, but it's also a story that I knew would resonate with people across gender, across age, across generations, really. And um, I am pleased to say that writing it, of course, seeing it in print has been thrilling after wanting to tell the story for so many years. But what's most gratifying has been receiving letters from my readers really almost on a daily basis for, for months now. And what I hear from them is that and I'm sorry, this sounds so self-serving, but that's, well, I guess, why I'm here. And what people tell me is that they could not put the book down. They read it in two or three days, and that it brought back their own personal stories of first love. I have um, grown men uh, writing to me that they couldn't stop sobbing at the end because it brought back some certain unresolved feelings of their own about some story that they experienced themselves. Um, so I guess that answers your question a little bit about why I had to write this. Right. And, and I do agree with you. Uh, we all, I think, have that first love. And as we look back, often I think you realize that it's not necessarily that that person was the right one for you, that that's not what you're missing. I think it's the emotion that's haunting, that very first real and strong emotion. and Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. has um, That is definitely not what you leave with. You don't leave with thinking, oh, that's the one that got away that I should have married. In my case, I know that this person would have been the absolute wrong person for me um, if it had even lasted two weeks more, you know. But And I think that what's interesting I, that people have told me about my book is that it's not just about a, a, a story of first love, but the book actually follows me on an arc of my entire life, at least three decades of it, from that moment where this romance in Paris ended. Um, the book ends about 20 years ago. It does not come to, date, to, to the current day. Um, but what it does follow me into is, is middle age and a happy, happy marriage with the most wonderful man and children of my own. But the book explores the very role that memory plays in our lives. And I think that one of the things I want readers to come away with is not that we should, you know, 
suppress and delete and cancel our memories, but rejoice in them and cherish them because they are, I mean, it sounds very corny and trite, but in fact, they are what have uh, have created the person that we are today, and they are our life and food for future years. And that is a line from a Wordsworth poem that I've always loved called Tintern Abbey, which figures in the memoir. It's a poem that I tried to teach um, this Frenchman under the eaves of my little maid's room on Rue Bonaparte in Paris in 1977. But in the poem itself, it's all about memory, and it's a kind of a lyrical meditation on memory and the role that memory continues to play in our lives. So it's a little bit, it's a, it's a subtle concept, mm-hmm. but I think that's what moves people because we all have those memories and um, it's remembering ourselves kind of on the brink of adulthood when we felt things so deeply and there was nothing we were more certain of in our lives. When I go back to, you know, in the, in the memoir, you kind of follow me from the young, young 20-year-old into middle-aged life when I pull the letters out that we had exchanged, you know, more than 200 letters over the course of our relationship and our separations and when I read the letters, I mentioned that it it just brings back that time in our lives when there was nothing more we were certain of. And it's not that I missed this man, but I missed myself at age 20 mm-hmm. when those emotions were so intense. Oh, yes. Yes, you put that so, so well. Thank you. <laughs> and, and another thing I, I think attracts readers is that most of us, probably have our relationships in a pretty mundane situation, but here you are, and we can kind of live vicariously through you. You know, you're in Paris. The setting is so romantic, the late 70s, all of the music, your young age, the fact that he was married. I mean, everything comes together to make your experience so intense. And so I think then our, as a reader, we can pop in our parts and pieces and enjoy the fantasy that you actually experienced yes exactly that's that's what um that's that is exactly what some people have written to me and um it there it just absolutely moves me and makes me feel very very happy a lot of people are mentioning the um that for them some people have written that they had an experience at that age in paris as well and that it brought back so many of those memories. It's also a kind of a time capsule of Paris in the late 70s. A lot of people have mentioned that they they loved hearing about the, um, you know, how I had to make a phone call. You go to the post office and you wait 30 minutes and then they say, cabine de, you have to run into a little, a little tiny cabin, uh, what do you call that? Like a little phone booth, really. Mm-hmm. And um, the carte orange that we had to use to flash at the bus drivers and just, you know, life was very different in the pre-internet age, um, especially when you're 20 years old and you're <laughs> wandering all over the city taking subways and buses, and you can't even really call any of your friends. Nobody had, so many of us didn't even have phones in our living quarters, mm-hmm. so we had to make a plan ahead of time, or we had to, um, you know, jump on a bus on, with the unlikely chance of finding somebody home. So it was, it was just so different. And then the whole letter-writing thing as well. I mean, most of us now have, I mean, many of my friends, I'll say, you know, have children in their 20s or so who 
have never experienced what it's like to not be in constant connection mm-hmm. with a friend or girlfriend or boyfriend. Constant, whether they're 3,000 miles away or 6,000 miles away in California, Boston, or Paris, um, or Asia. I mean, they, they can be texting nonstop and never know what that anticipation mm-hmm. is like to connect with somebody. And, of course, for me, letters in this story played a huge role. Um, readers who haven't read the book will see that at the beginning, in part one, almost every chapter begins with a letter from Luke to me when we were separated later on in the book. And so there's a kind of um, displacement of time and space. Each letter kind of forewarns, uh, is a harbinger of what is mm-hmm. about to happen in the chapter in the next chapter, for instance, one of his letters will say, I can't believe you were a year ago you were just arriving in Paris and looking for a chorus to sing in. And then that chapter will begin with my arriving in Paris and looking for a chorus to sing mm-hmm. in. And it's way before I've even met him. So it, it kind of spirals the story along and makes readers keep wondering, when will they meet? When will they meet? And I think that's part of what makes readers say that it was a page-turner because it, it gives them a little tease about what the chapter might be about, and then they want to read. So the letters, of course, I spent, when, when I finally left Paris in the spring after my uh, junior year abroad, I went back to finish school at Wesleyan University, and all I did was write letters. Every spare moment, I wrote letters on my little single bed in my off-campus housing, and every day I would check my mailbox and I would get sometimes two or three letters a day. So it was, you know, you write a letter, it takes five letters for it to arrive in France, and then you wait another five days for an answer to come back. Mm-hmm. So that was really the structure of my senior year in school. And that is something that our offspring will never, ever mm-hmm. be familiar with. And, you know, I probably would not give it up for the world the memory of what that is like. Um, it was painful and difficult, but it made the emotions so intense. Yes. So that in that way, it was a time capsule to that, oh. that, that era of our lives. Oh, I love that. Just that pure anticipation, which can be so painful, but as you say, then just so beautiful and rewarding at the back end. So fascinating, isn't it? It is, exactly, yes. Oh. I and I to, imagine, to imagine that something like this could, would never have been the same in this day and age. Right. I mean, you know, texting. Mm-hmm. If I, it almost makes me laugh when I think about what it would have been like for um, for this person, Luke, to be texting, texting me. Texting you. <laughs> or, or even sending me emails, you know. And I, you know, because we didn't have email or cell phones, the only way I could reach him Um, was to go to my daily cafe basement and call his office, and then we'd make a plan for the day, you know, whether to meet in a park or at at a cafe or at his office off the Champs-Élysées. So it's just really fascinating to to think about that. Absolutely. You know what I'm wondering? Did you ever consider um, fictionalizing this? What made you decide to do a pure memoir versus a fictional version? Yes, I did, and it's such a good question, and um, one I've been asked a lot. Um, 
And by the way, if anyone is interested, and I know you were going to bring it up later, and you already brought it up, but I created, you know, I'm a musician, so I had a, a music website for my concerts, but I created my author website, and it's just my name, .com, com. And on that new author site, I have a bunch of um, written interviews, but also Zoom interviews. And, um, oh, some with my alma maters, like Exeter, Phillips Exeter Academy, where I went to school, another one with an organization called Book Movement. And so there were videos of my answering a lot of these questions. But to get back to the question is, yes, I did at first. So this book has been through many iterations. And like I said, I did start it more than 40 years ago, right after the heartbreak of this uh, relationship ending. I sat by the Charles River in Boston and emptied the archives of my heart. It wrote down every conversation and every detail I could remember from those 18 months of when this um, story happened in Paris and then our separation and then the breakup and all that. And then I put it all away. And this was, of course, longhand into three spiral notebooks that I then threw up into the top shelf of my closet. But then 10 years later, I took it out and entered it into a computer and started to write a book. And it was so much material. It was too much material for an actual memoir. I hadn't yet read a book about memoir, and that memoir is about one thing. It's not about everything but the kitchen sink that you throw into about your life. It's about one story. And so I tried actually to send out this book 20 years ago, but it was not ready and it was not good. It had it had, it had potential, but it was too much material. Uh, I wrote about my children and I wrote about my life as a flutist. I mean, I just wrote too much stuff. And then I um, put it away again. I got discouraged. Every 10 years, I would brush it off and, and tweak it. And then finally... Oh, in the middle of that, I did try to make it into a novel, to get back to your question. I thought to myself, this is too personal. I want to protect my family, my husband, my children, myself. I don't want people reading this personal stuff about me. So I tried to, in fact, one of my agents, no, I mean, one of an agent who was interested in the story said, you know, I don't know what to do with this because it's more than a love story. It's kind of, and it's definitely... A story I think I could use if you made it into a novel. So I tried, and I fictionalized everything, and I added lots of stuff, and I killed him off at the end. <laughs> I gave him an aneurysm. But then, what, and I sent it back to that person who had liked it, and she didn't like it anymore. So I got discouraged, and I waited another 10 years. So this is an answer to why it took me 40 years to, to see this book in print. <laughs> Finally, around three or four years or so ago, I was determined if I, if it was the last thing I did on this earth, I was going to see the story in print. So I researched and listened to, I read, listened to one woman especially whom I loved named Marion Roach Smith, and she wrote a book about the memoir project, and I realized that I needed to cut about 100 pages, which I did. Then I restructured, oh, first of all, I turned it back into a memoir. I knew then memoir was the really the only true and honest version that this story could be in. Mm -hmm. And I decided that if I were to tell it correctly, it had to be my true and honest story. So, um, you know, as you know, to most, 
to change a story to novel and then back to memoir is not an easy thing. Another reason why it took me so long. But I cut it a lot. I restructured it. I boiled, boiled, boiled. That was one of her phrases, meaning get rid of anything that's not vital to the story. I cut, 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 cut. Um, and then I had something. And then I also learned from the same woman that a memoir is a universal truth as illustrated by a personal story. And I had found my truth. Mm-hmm. And my truth was that when you experience first love that is extremely passionate, extremely romantic, and ends suddenly and almost violently, I don't mean violently in the literal term, but something that is so painful and something that has no closure and no answers, then you can spend your life looking for answers. Mm -hmm. It can take a lifetime to get over. And I believe that my book illustrates that point. Mm -hmm. And so once I had my truth, then I just needed a really good title. And it used to have a different title. I hope I'm not going on too long about all these things. As you know, as you can see, I have a lot to say about it, so just cut me off anytime you want. But the, the title of this book back 20 years or so ago was, oh, at the very beginning, I had a third title. The very beginning, when I was just, when I was 22 years old and I just jotted down all this information, I thought it was going to be called Lilies That Fester. And that line comes from Shakespeare's sonnet number 94. And I thought that this sonnet was so good to describe this character, Luke. It starts with something like, They that have power to hurt, but moving others are themselves as stone. And I went, yes, yes, that's my book, that's my book. All right, so I lived with that title for a while. But then one day, a much better title came to me. And that title was A Certain Shade of Blue. But that was way before Fifty Shades of Grey came out. (laughs) And once Fifty Shades of Grey came out, I knew I couldn't use a certain shade of blue anymore. So I ditched that title, and I came up with Paris Blue. Mm -hmm. And I knew that was going to be my best title. And I kind of don't want to share what the title means, because it's a bit of a, a little bit of a gasp moment when people figure it out in the book. But it's not, I'm just going to tell any readers whose curiosity we captured so far today, if you're planning on um, getting the book, I don't want to tell you because it's a bit of a spoiler. It's not exactly what you would imagine. It's not just Paris blue, you know, I feel blue, I feel isolated, sad, Paris evokes this blueness. It it has a little bit of that, but there's something very specific um, about the meaning of that title. Ready. We, we will leave it right there. There's a dun dun dun. <laughs> exactly. One of those moments. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, um, m- music plays such an important part in your life and an important part of this book. And and you also include um, little bits of, or links to YouTube videos where one can listen to some of the music. And as I as I was wandering through your site. I also felt that your writing reads quite like music. Well, that's a very, very nice thing to say. Thank you, Pat. Um, I've, I am so flattered by that, and I'm so touched when people have said they enjoyed the writing. I, 
still to this day feel that one book does not a writer make. <laughs> and I think this is probably my only book, but I am thrilled when people say they like the writing because I just feel that it was simple, very simple writing. I don't use any big words. I just told uh, this story from the heart um, as honestly as I could. But I did get that from a few people, uh, some of my Amazon reviews, that that it reminded them of, of music. And I, I just appreciate that so much. Mm-hmm. So, so thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, I did have to write one little um, essay about what I thought the connection of writing and music was for me in my life. And I, at first I didn't really think I had anything to say about it. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized two things, that I think that the the urgent need to tell a story, as I described this book, may come from the same place that the need to perform a certain piece of music and and play it in a certain interpretation um, exists for a musician, possibly, you know, that you just want to share your vision of something with the world. And, you know, even though this was such a personal story of mine, there's something so gratifying about fact, the fact that I was able to do it and that it has um, resonated with people. I really had no idea whether anyone would read it. Mm-hmm. And it was almost going to be enough for me just to hold it in my hands. But the fact that people have enjoyed it and written me such beautiful letters has just been beyond gratifying. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the other correlation, I think, between music and writing is that you know, sometimes you learn how to end a chapter with a little bit of a cliffhanger so that people will want to turn the page and see what happens next. Mm-hmm. And, and music is a little bit like that. You can end a movement in a certain way with such mystery that the reader just cannot wait to hear what the next movement's going to sound like. That sounds a bit far-fetched to me, to tell you the real truth. I'm not really sure, but I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah, it's something to think about because I was thinking about it today as as well about the differences of being a musician and performing the works of others is as, as you said basically you're interpreting what they meant to convey versus being a writer where now you are the composer that's a, such a good point and i meant to follow up on that exactly because music is so abstract that when you're listening to a piece of music each listener is putting his own associations and inner worlds into how he hears it. And when you're writing a story, there's one specific story that you are trying to convey. Mm -hmm. So that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. But also, I'd love to come back to the fact that you brought up the music in the book. Um, Yes, it it plays a fundamental role, which is why I just wanted my readers to know what the music sounded like that I talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, To those who haven't read it, there are a good 16 to 20 pieces of music that are almost like virtual characters in the book. And I encourage my readers to just go to the author's site and click on, there's a little footnote next to each piece that I talk about, and you can click on that and hear exactly what that Schubert piano trio sounds like, because there is no way to this very day, the only person who's done it well, I think, is Proust, who can talk about the visceral or inner world of music, um, uh, the inner world that music can uh, generate, can can conjure in somebody's 
inner mind, you know. And so um, words have just never been sufficient in describing the experience of listening to music. So I really wanted my readers to to hear what Beethoven's ninth slow movement sounded like when I was sitting on the stage experiencing that slow movement before we stood up to sing the final movement of of that symphony, when I was, before anything had actually happened with this Frenchman, Luc, and we found ourselves singing it side by side on the stage Mm. behind the Orchestra of Paris. So, Mm. and you know, music is what brought us together, and it was the thing that connected us most deeply, and why it was so, and music was why it was so difficult to move on after it was over, because when I heard any of these pieces that Mm. we had shared deeply, anything that was deeply rooted in our history, it made it very, very difficult not to associate that piece of music with all the memories. Oh, Oh, for sure. I mean, the power, the power of music. I I majored in music. I studied piano and voice and I had the opportunity to be. I did. Yeah, I was in many choruses and performed that the Mozart Requiem Lacrimosa, which you have on on your website. That's amazing. And you know what it made me think about? Because before I asked you memoir versus fiction, I was thinking that unlike writing, I don't think a composer ever composes fiction unless they're maybe writing a jingle for a commercial. I'm, I'm not sure that anyone who writes music writes fictional music. There's no such, I'm not sure there's such a right. thing. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Oh my gosh, so much yeah. to talk with you about, but I we're going to begin to wrap up here, and I know there's, sure. I know yeah, there's so much it's more. Such a pleasure, Pat. Yeah, I want to make sure we're not missing anything, though, that you wanted to talk about. Um, no, I think you did such a good job um, covering all the different facets. I just... If, if if we have music lovers out there mm-hmm. and they are curious about this other part of my life, my real job, um, my real other non-paying <laughs> job, um, I'm a professional flutist and I have another website for the concerts that uh, I that I put together as artistic director, and that is called MistralMusic.org. That's the name. That's the website address um www and all of our concerts are on our youtube channel as well so of course we want to share those with as many people as possible who are music lovers out there um i'm also of course when i play my concerts i always include a mention of my book because i think there's such a crossover so many of our fans who come to our concerts um are interested in this very personal story that I just published. They didn't know anything about it. So, um, and I'd love my readers to know about the concerts as well. So. Oh, you are just so multi-talented and fascinating. It's just so such a pleasure to be able oh. to have this opportunity to talk with you today. Julie Skolnick and the book titled Paris Blue. Everybody needs to get a copy of this. You can find out more at julieskolnick.com or her music website, mistralmusic.com. Org. I I can't say any more than thank you for uh, for writing this book, for sharing it with us, and for sharing time with me today. Ah, uh, Pat, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure, and I'm so glad to get to know you a bit myself. <laughs> <laughs>